We're bringing our series on James in for a landing tonight. And so I'm going to be in James chapter 5 and starting in verse 13. And uh, have you enjoyed walking through James with us? This is our 10th week through the book of James. And uh, I always find when we do these series, I always find that the book is deeper and richer and more interesting than I understood it to be when I walked into it. I hope it's been the same experience for you. James is a powerful pastor, a powerful preacher, and he's got one final message that he wants to deliver to us tonight. I think you're gonna be blessed and challenged and strengthened by this. So it's gonna be James chapter five, starting in verse 13. If you have Bibles or devices and you're there, why don't you let me know by saying I'm there. Great. Let's take a minute and pray. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that you are faithful as the sun over and in all of God's house. And we are, um, like we are not just the Jesus club, but it's in you that we live and move and have our, our being. We're put together by you. And the scripture says that we are the body of Christ. Elsewhere it talks about us being uh, the branches that are grafted into the vine. What that means is that we're a vital part of who you are. And we don't quite understand how that works, but somehow scripture has told us that you have made us part of your very person, your very self. And so we're asking that you attend well to us tonight, as we know that you always do. We're asking that you would send your spirit to us, that you would renew the face of the ground in us. We're asking, Lord Jesus, that you would find us where our hearts are diminished by circumstances, where we're depressed, where we're feeling down, where we're doubting. We're asking that you would come and lift up our hearts in your love, that you would put faith back in us tonight. We thank you that the scripture, St. Augustine said of God, he said that God was ever ancient, ever new. The scripture is also that way that it's so ancient, it's remote from us, it's very far away from us, but also it's ever new, it's a fresh word for us. It always explodes into our circumstance and I'm trusting you for that tonight, Lord God. I'm asking that the scriptures would speak to us. I'm asking that our hearts would erupt with fresh love and fresh hope and fresh faith. And I'm asking that tonight, that you would make us more fully and more actually your people that we would bear your glory into the world well, that we would bear your name well in the world. Grant that, we're asking. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. James writes, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. And is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, James says, will make, everybody say will make, will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. That's resurrection language there, by the way, that as our God raised Jesus from the dead, set him beyond the corruption of death, put him at his own right hand, James says that somehow in the interaction of faith, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to God's people. The Lord will raise that person up. If they've sinned, James says, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's effective. Elijah, he says, was a human being, just like we are. Elijah prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, that whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God. It is the task of the preacher to bring their hearers face to face with the reality of the living God. And James does this as well as anybody. He has labored throughout his book to make sure that his hearers are located inside of the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they see their whole existence bathed in God. He's talked about in the beginning of James chapter one, he's talked about God in our trials, that when you're walking through difficult things and difficult circumstances, how do you spot the hidden presence of God there? He's talked about God in our actions and what we do, how we listen, how we treat people. But where is God in that? Because faith is not just a matter of the interior, is it? The faith is a matter of our whole life, our exterior. It's a matter of our actions. He's talked about God in our treatment of the poor, because the poor are close to God's heart. They ought to be close to our hearts too. And so our faith does not just float above the realities of society, but our faith actually has something important to say to the realities of society. James wants us to discern the presence of God and how we treat the poor. James has talked to us about God in our speech, the way that we talk to one another, the way that we use our words. Do we use them for curse or blessing? James is trying to give us a theology of our speech. James is trying to give us a theology of our discernment of what is wisdom and what is not. And the world says that one thing is wisdom, wisdom looking like ambition and envy and trying to get ahead. James has told us that the wisdom that comes down from heaven is something altogether different. It's peaceable and it's pure, it's submissive, it's considerate. He's bathing our lives in God. He's talked to us about God and our desires, that our desires are not something that are hidden from the gaze of God. But what James wants us to do is he wants us to see our desires as taking place in the presence of God so that those desires can be molded and shaped to the reality of the kingdom. He's talked to us about God and our plans for the future. When we think about tomorrow, how do we not do that like pagans? How do we do that like Christians? He's talked about God and our relationship to our wealth because our money matters to God. And most recently, he talked to us about God in our waiting. James has bathed us in the reality of God. And here now, at the end of his letter, what James does is he sort of gears us into appropriate actions with the living God. He tells us that if you're in trouble, you ought to pray. He says, and if things are good, you ought to sing. And if somebody's sick, you ought to anoint them with oil. And if it turns out that there's sin in that person's life, they ought to confess it. And once you've finished praying, you should actually never finish praying. He says, you ought to pray earnestly. And if you've noticed that there are people in the community that have wandered off from the faith, you ought to run after them and go and try to find them, turn sinners from the errors of their ways. James, brothers and sisters, insists that there is divine power loose in the world. And to be God's people is to be rightly ordered to that power. It's not just to believe in it as an abstraction, but to be God's people is to have your whole spirit, soul, and body organized to the reality of the power of God. And what James is very aware of is that when the people of God have their actions ordered rightly to the power of God, 
then the power of God is at work in the community in ways that liberate and bless and heal. Can I get an amen tonight? The people of Israel were very aware of the power of God. In fact, it's impossible to read the scriptures without seeing in them a kind of index of God's powerful ways written across history. The book of Exodus, Moses has delivered the people out of Egypt and they're standing at the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies have been drowned in the Red Sea and all of a sudden they burst into song and they sing this, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted, the horse and the driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. But we don't think about God like that in our time, do we? We think about God as a grandfatherly figure up in the clouds somewhere that every once in a while he's got a little spare change in his pocket, you know, and he shows up and he gives the spare change to the kids and he's nice to them and stuff. Or God is a great kind of metaphysical abstraction. He's the ground of being. He's the formless absolute, you know. But the scripture won't let us get off the hook with that kind of loose talk about God. But it wants us to know that The Lord is a warrior, and that's a good thing for God's people to know, that God is a God who's so mightily involved with the circumstances of his people that when they are oppressed, his power goes into motion to heal them and save them and deliver them. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers, they're drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters covered over them, and they sank into the depths like a stone. And listen to what Moses says. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in what? Power, but your right hand, Lord, it shattered the enemy. Verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, and what? Working wonders. <laughs> That's the God that we serve. The God who is not just clothed with immense power, but the God who is power. And when he gets involved with his people, what happens is that glory spills out from him. Wonders cascade down from his very being into history to lift up and liberate and bless and heal God's people. And what the children of Israel had to learn, the whole task of being the people of God was to learn how to live rightly, to order their life rightly to the power of God. Exodus chapter 19, just a few chapters later, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenants, he's asking them to order themselves to the power. Then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And so on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. The scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That tremor that they felt in their hearts, that's a good thing. That that means that the reality of God has reached down into their innermost and it's organizing something in them. And Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain and Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And what happened? Say it. The whole mountain. The whole mountain. But that's the appropriate response. 
in the presence of God is that there would be a tremble, there would be an organization of ourselves, our being to the reality of God. It was moments like this in the scriptures that led the psalmist to say things like Psalm 114, tremble, O Lord, or tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned a rock into a pool and the hard rock into springs of water. Israel understood that their God and our God now is the living God and that the world that they lived in was already always awash in his power. Can I get an amen tonight? Guys, the world that we live in is already always awash in the power of God. See, sometimes the way that we think about God is that we have kind of our natural life over here and then God is the supernatural being that kind of is outside of everything and every once in a while what happens is that people kind of get in trouble. And so God sort of jumps in here and there, and then he jumps back out. And he comes to people's rescue, and then he goes back to doing normal stuff and letting everything else kind of happen in a normal way. But that is not the way that the scriptures talk about the power of God. But in the biblical imagination, everything that is exists at every moment by the power of God. The world that we live in is already always awash in his power. It's waiting there to be accessed. One theologian said it this way. She said that God's very being is alive. It is vital. Holy Scripture sets aside a term for this living vitality, that the Lord God is dunamis. He is forceful, powerful life. She says we can never exhaust our praise for this holy dynamism, for to stand in its presence is to be swept over and swept away by its mighty wind, its spirit that broods and blows where it will. The force that is God's very being, oh, I love this. It radiates outward, it expands and it explodes. It never ceases or wearies. It does not stand in reserve, but it is always everywhere alive. And to merely touch the hem of his garment is to be healed. The power that goes forth from him, the power that lives as deity, the one God. (laughs) Oh, guys, God does not just have power, God is power. God is not just powerful, but he is the Lord, God, almighty, omnipotent, who reigns. And so what we're called to do is to turn our attention and our love and our affection and our need to the power of God. You and I are bathed, brothers and sisters, in the reality and the wonder and the power of the living God. And when we turn towards it rightly, that power works to our benefit, which is exactly what James says, James 5.15, that the prayer offered in faith will make, will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. It's the promise of scripture, guys, that when we touch the hem of his garment, that power comes out from him. And that our lives are changed, our world is changed by that. And you might be sitting there tonight and you might be a little bit skeptical, you know? Yeah, okay, Andrew, I understand that we read from scripture, a miracle seemed to happen, there's what happened with Israel in Egypt and at the Red Sea, and there's some interesting miracles with the prophets, and of course Jesus did lots of miracles, but I'm not so sure if they happen anymore. Maybe miracles just died out with the apostles, the early church, and now what we have to go on is just faith. Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's just the case that the Bible writers in like this attempt to prop up their idea of God, that they imported the idea of miracles in the text of Scripture, and none of that stuff really happened. It's just them kind of remembering in a fanciful way. They're sort of waxing uh, fantastical, you know, the Scriptures. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the way that you think. Do miracles still happen today? And I'm here to tell you that they do. 
I'm here to tell you that the power of God still does move upon God's people, that miracles still happen, that God still raises sick people up. And I know that because I've seen it with my own eyes. It's not just a theological conviction, but it's an experiential conviction for me. I've told you before about the little old lady up in Marshfield, Wisconsin, the town that I'm from, from, Ola, Ola, who lived her life bathed in the presence of God and knew the Lord Jesus so well. She, Ola, operated in so many profound and powerful gifts of the Holy Spirit. But one of them was that she had gifts of healing that kind of followed her around. And we would have Ola every now and, uh, now and again come to our little school. We had a school that was associated with our church. And we would have Ola come in and she would teach Bible classes for us. And Ola would sit down. She knew the scriptures so well, she never had to bring a note with her, you know. And she would sit down at the desk and she would open the scriptures and she would begin to read them and explain them to us. And our hearts would fill up with a sense of the presence of God as Ola spoke. And then as often as not, Ola would say when she was done teaching, she would go, now are there any of you here that need healing? And there were often kids in our classes that had chronic conditions of various kinds, some of them that had back ailments. Or I remember there were some kids that had legs that were shorter than the other. They had like hip issues or back issues, whatever it was, chronic conditions. And, and Ola would lay her hands on these folks and pray for them. And these kids, many of whom belonged to families that did not believe in the miraculous, they would go home and their parents would be like, what happened to your leg? God happened. That's what happened. And they'd go to the doctors and the doctors would confirm that something out of the ordinary had taken place. God heals us, brothers and sisters. I remember years ago, serving at a church in Oklahoma, I was an associate pastor there. And one year we decided to raise a bunch of money to drill a clean water well in Guatemala. And so we raised the money and we put together the project in tandem with another organization. And then uh, we sent a team of our folks down from the church to Guatemala, this little village, uh, to help the organization drill the wells. So There's a team of about six or seven folks. And one of the guys that went on the trip was a young man in his 20s. He was a believer, but a very skeptical believer, very skeptical believer. What he was attracted to in Christianity and what really kept him hanging on was the ethical and the justice-oriented aspects of Christianity, our care for the poor and the disenfranchised. That stuff he loved, but he'd seen so much abuse and fanaticism in the church that he just wasn't too sure about miracles anymore. But excited about this trip, helping people? Sign me up for that. And so he goes on the trip down to this little village in Guatemala, and on one of the days that he was there, this little girl comes up to him, and she had what looked like she had, it looked like she had a golf ball stuffed into her mouth. Just a big old abscess tooth on the side of her face. And the little girl, there were no doctors and there was no medicine. The little girl comes up to him and she says, would you lay your hands on me and pray for me? He said, Andrew, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I don't even really believe in divine healing. I'm not sure anyway. And this little girl who's out, there are no doctors and there's no medicine. She's out of options. She comes up to me as one of the people of Jesus, asking me to lay my hands on her that she be healed. I go, what do you do? What did you do? He said, I reached out my hand. I just, how could I refuse her? He said, so I reached out my hand and I touched her cheek and I prayed in the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus, if you're able to, and I believe that you're able to, would you take this pain away? Would you heal this tooth? In Jesus' name, amen. Little girl comes up to him the next day and it's gone. Her face is restored. Just as sound as the other side of her face. Yeah, you can give thanks to God for that. He goes, Andrew, I wasn't even really sure if I believed in miracles and God did it, but maybe there's something to that, guys. But Jesus said that if you have faith as small as a, that's right. That's not very big faith. 
But somehow that faith is itself the ordering of our being to God that releases something in the world. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, Jesus said, you can say to this mountain, be moved, be cast on the sea, and it'll be done for you. I've seen it with my own eyes, these healings. In our own congregation, many of you know she works in our women's ministry department, leads worship for us, Natalie, Natalie Runyon. Years ago, Natalie's dad was a pastor, Ron, who's part of our community also. Ron went into cardiac arrest one day, just out of the blue, cardiac arrest. And for two hours, the doctors worked on him, went in and out of having a heartbeat, and they were paddling him and trying to bring him back. And chaos in that hospital room. And and as Natalie tells the story, there was a chaplain in the room that day, and the chaplain was praying nice prayers over Ron. You know, may the peace of Christ be with you, the power of Christ be with you. And if you know Natalie, <laughs> you can imagine her doing this. <laughs> she pushes the chaplain out of the way. If you're not going to pray with faith, but don't pray at all. And she climbs up on top of the table, lays on top of her dad, and says, in the name of Jesus, take up your mat and walk. Guys, her father lives to this day. <laughs> the doctor met with them several weeks later and said to them, and I quote, there is no good medical reason why you all should be here today. But they were telling the family to get ready to say their goodbyes because there was no hope left. And God broke in and healed. God broke in and healed. And you might be sitting there and you're still a little bit skeptical. You go, oh, the story about Ola. Maybe they just got an adjustment in the back and the leg went back to normal. Or maybe the little girl, maybe the abscess just kind of, I don't know, natural causes that just kind of went away. And maybe it was just the, the ingenuity of the doctors brought Ron back to life. Maybe that's what it is. Was it the power of God or was it natural causes? What was it? And I say to you that we don't have to choose. But who is the God who upholds natural causes by the word of his might? Our God, the God who is omnipotent being. And if he chooses to heal through the skill of doctors or he chooses to heal by reaching his naked hand into our space and time, that's his prerogative. But he is always and everywhere our healer. The great Wendell Berry put it like this. He said that the miraculous is not extraordinary, but indeed it is the common mode of our existence. It is our daily bread. Whoever has really considered the lilies of the field or the birds of the air and pondered the improbability of their existence in this warm world within the cold and empty stellar distances, now listen to this, will hardly balk at all at the turning of water into wine, which, after all, was very, a very small miracle, for we forget the greater and still continuing miracle by which water with soil and sunlight is turned into graves. <laughs> Guys, who is making it all go now? Who upholds it by the word of his might? Who is the one in whom we live and move and have our being? Who is the one that is putting breath in your lungs right now? Who is the one who's making the blood race in your veins right now? Who is the one who's giving you sight? Who is the one that's giving you your mind? Who is the one who's making it possible for us to join together in this space and lift up our voices in praise? It's God, the almighty God. And when we turn towards his power rightly, it works towards us in fresh ways. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I sat with a young person recently, another skeptic, who had a lot of questions about Christianity. And he said to me, he goes, Andrew, uh, here's a question for you. Why is it that you think that in our culture we see so many people nowadays turning to new age religions and 
mysticisms and other approaches to spirituality. Why is that? Without hesitation, I said to him, I'll tell you exactly why it is. Because Christianity gave away the wonderful, mystical, transcendent, supernatural aspect of its faith. But this is our inheritance, guys. But this is our birthright. Our our faith is not just an ethical system. And it's not just a philosophy. And what we've done in modern times in Christianity is we've reduced our faith just to ethics or just to philosophy. And it's fine. There are ethical aspects to Christianity. The whole book of James is on how to behave. And there's certainly very great philosophy in the scriptures. In fact, Christianity has produced some of the greatest philosophers that the world has ever seen. Ethics and philosophy are all there. But do you know what is it? it's all encompassed within? The wonder-working power of God. It's encompassed in the reality that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if he hadn't, we'd have nothing to talk about. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, all manner of the miraculous is on the table for us. It's not enough for us just to have ethics. And it's not enough for us just to have philosophy. Our hearts are longing for contact with the living God. The great St. Augustine said that you awaken us, O God, to delight in your praise. For you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Christianity, guys, it's time for Christianity to take this back. Part of the reason that folks are leaving the churches is because their hearts are hungry for contact with the transcendent, with all-powerful God. And what we've given them instead is just nice rules or advice for having a better life or neat ideas about the afterlife. It's bigger than that. And there's power on the table for you. I'm just burdened for some of you tonight. My sense is that some of you coming into this room tonight, you have things in your life that are very, very, very stuck. And God wants to move in a powerful way on those things. He is the God who specializes in getting things unstuck. And what you need to avail yourself of, brothers and sisters, is you need to avail yourself of the church. Because here's what James doesn't say. James doesn't say, hey, now go believe in the power of God and then wander off into your own little closet here and just kind of throw up prayers to God. And it's important that we do that. We have our own personal devotional life. We offer up prayer to God. But you know what James does? He says, look, if you're in trouble in some way, if you're sick in body, if you need breakthrough, you know what you ought to do? Call on the elders of the church. But people with spiritual maturity, people who have logged miles with the living God, people who know God like the back of their hand, He says, call those people around you, people with faith in their hearts, because what will happen is their faith will buoy up your faith. And that prayer that's offered in faith, James says, it will make the sick person well. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Somehow something will change. Some of you just need to avail yourself of the church tonight. And guess what? We're here for you. We'll pray for you tonight, and we'll see God do miracles. One final thing, and then I'll begin to take us into communion. The question that's left unanswered here so far is what does it look like to be rightly turned toward the power of God? What does it look like to be rightly turned towards the power of God? And James is clear that it's to embrace a posture of penitence, a posture of penitence before the Lord and others. Look back down at the text, James 5.16. James James says, therefore, what? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
But James seems to think that this posture of penitence that we embrace before the Lord, that somehow that's crucial in seeing the wonder-working power of God flow into our lives in a profound way. James seems to think that our knowingly holding on to sin is in some ways it's a blockade for the power of God. And I understand, I understand that this can be weaponized and it has been weaponized. Oh, you didn't get healed? Well, the reason that you didn't get healed is that you don't have enough faith. Oh, you didn't get the breakthrough? You didn't get the miracle that you were contending for? Oh, the reason for that is that you must have some kind of unconfessed sin in your life. And so adding to the burden of not having that breakthrough that you so desperately needed and desired is the crushing spiritual weight of thinking that somewhere there's something in you that's flawed before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is not a single person in this room that is not flawed in some way before the Lord. All of us have sin that we're not aware of, okay? So you cannot use this as a, as a weapon to others, to use against others. However, James does think that this posture of humbling ourselves before the Lord, that it releases something that works, works to our benefit. He said earlier, James 4, 10, 4, 4 and verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and what? He will lift you up. That there's something that happens when we empty ourselves out before the Lord, when we take the first step and when we empty ourselves out before other people. When we say, most merciful God, and in the communion of all these saints, I, I need help. It's on me. I did this thing that somehow that releases grace towards us. And I, I know this. I've experienced it in so many areas of my life. But maybe one of the most profound is my marriage. Mandy and I, two weeks from now, will be celebrating 20 years together, 20 years of marriage. And marriage, go ahead. Thank you. Appreciate it. Marriage is nothing if it is not an immense power from God. I think it's one of God's great powers on the earth. And one of the reasons I know this is because we have four children. But somehow the creative power of God at work in that marriage to produce these kids, it is an immense power. And what we have learned over the years is that that power starts working. It can work to our benefit and it can also greatly work to our disadvantage when we start behaving towards one another in ways that are not righteous, when they're not right. And you married couples, you know what it feels like when you get in that space with one another, when you're piling up on righteousness and you're not treating each other well. What happens is the marriage gets all kind of conflicted. And the worst thing that you can do in that space is just try to muscle through it. Or even worse than that, the worst thing that you can do is start blaming the other person. Well, you know why our marriage is so bad? If you would just straighten up, if you would just fix your ways, if you would just stop doing that thing that irritates me so much, nothing will make it worse faster than that. And just by the same token, the thing that we have found over and over and over again that releases grace like nothing else and causes the power that is the marriage to turn towards us rightly for God's grace, his mercy to break upon us again is when we get down on our knees in front of each other and we stop pointing the finger and we say, it's on me. It's on me. I'm sorry for how I've been behaving. I'm sorry for what I've been doing. I'm sorry for how I've treated you. There's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for it. Please forgive me. And there's, I'm just telling you, there's something about it. And some of you, you got a, a mountain of relationships or maybe just several relationships that are just out of whack in your life. And I'm telling you, God wants to move on them in a powerful way. 
You know what the first step is? The first step is owning your stuff, guys. It's owning your stuff. And the promise of scripture is that when we begin to own our stuff, God's power will begin to break upon us. The salvation of God will descend upon us from on high. And I'm telling you, it's not just for our personal relationships and our personal issues, but we are living in a moment right now in our nation that is as fraught as any I can remember in our lifetime. National, we got this global pandemic that we're in the midst of, civil unrest, racism, turmoil, strife, broken leadership. And you know what the easy thing to do for the people of God is right now? It's to look out at the world and go, oh, y'all had it coming, you know? The reason things are so jacked up is because of this stuff that you've been doing. And what we start doing is we start pointing the fingers. I'm telling you guys, it's the wrong move for us. Remember the Old Testament says in the book of Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name, will what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then what will happen? I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'll, I'll heal their land. I'll heal their lands. But we can't sit in here in the house of God and point the finger at the world. Our call as the people of God is to say, come, let us return to the Lord. It's not on you, it's on us. Judgment begins with the house of God. So what we do is we, we begin to call upon the name of our God. We say, most merciful God, it's on us. We confess that we've been part of this wickedness. We confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and what we've left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And we find that just in that space that all of a sudden God's salvation starts breaking upon the church and breaking out of the church into the world. Can you receive that tonight?